Welcome to Data Bytes. I'm Jesse Chizeski K. And I'm Susan Wong. Jesse and I are two statisticians in academia, and we want to bring statistics closer to you, bring you closer to statistics. And this includes topics in big data, data science, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and this list may grow. Susan, I believe we have a big announcement to make. We do indeed, Jesse. Right now, as of actually a few days ago, Data Bytes, this podcast, is available on iTunes. Yay! I have actually already subscribed. I may have been our first subscriber. <laughs> I wish we could see how many subscribers we have, and I wish we could, like, get information. Okay, that sounds really creepy, but I wish <laughs> we could talk to our subscribers and get to know what they like, what they don't like, because we're still in our infancy and we want to learn what we can do better. Yeah, that's a good point. And actually, um, maybe I'll, I'll mention this now. We will say this at, again at the end of the episode, but if people do have um, any sort of comments that you want to, to give us, you can, um, you can go to our website, which is databytespodcast.github.io, and there's a way to submit, um, to submit a message and send that to us. So we would love to hear from you, especially if you have any um, particular feedback on the topics we're covering or, or the con general content of these podcasts. So in this episode, we are planning to have the first of a two-part series where we provide you with, um, with more of our background, because at this point, you, um, the listener, know very little about um, Susan or myself. And so today we're going to um, get into Susan's background and how she got to where she is today. And in a week or so, we will have the reverse role play where I will play interviewer and Jesse will be the interviewee and we will get to know Jesse a little bit better as well. So we should start by just giving a little bit of a forewarning that Jesse and I are more alike than in ways that we already talked about. In fact, we found out after we met at Yale that not only are we both statisticians in the same department, but in our prior lives, we both used to be actuaries. And uh, if you don't know what an actuary is, Susan will get into that as she talks about her background. But, um, but yeah, I guess um, our, our common background somehow brought us together as friends and colleagues. So it's worked out. But I promise we won't be very much more repetitive beyond beyond being both actuaries, we actually do have very different career trajectories that led us here. Indeed. All right, so let's get started, Susan, with, um, can you just give us some background on maybe your, um, what you did as an undergrad, how, how you, what were your interests, what was your major, what did you do after you were an undergrad? Sure, so I will say this, that when I was in high school, last year of high school, I took this multi-hour long career aptitude test. And this actually defined my whole undergraduate career. Um, this, this career aptitude test wasn't just like a what do you like and what do you not like test. It was a test that was about what skill sets do you have? Can you understand diagrams that would make you a good engineer or are you good at math? And after going through this long test, I got my results saying that I should be an actuary. So did this you, is probably not your story, but this is definitely mine. <laughs> did you know what an actuary was when you got that result? I had no idea. Um, and, and I did some Googling because actually I'm not sure if that was Google at, at that time, but I did search it up on the web. Um, you find all these articles about how 
actuaries are like the number one or number two job in the US and it's great for people who love math. They work a lot with predictions of risk. Um, oh, and there's also, of course, that stereotype that actuaries predict when you're going to die. So not the best kind of um, advertisement for being an actuary, but they did say it was one of the best jobs. So when I went to study at UC Berkeley, I decided I was going to sort of do the best I can, get through as fast as I could to come out and be an actuary um, on the other side. Interesting. Now, did, does Berkeley have an actuarial program or did you do math or what, what did you actually study at Berkeley? Yeah, so Berkeley has, um, does not have a actuarial science program, but they do have um, applied math. And under applied math, you can have a concentration in actuarial science. And that's exactly what I did. So really, it was an applied math degree, but you would be encouraged to take classes in probability, in statistics. Um, that might actually be mostly it. Uh, maybe, maybe some sort of numerical analysis, things like that. Um, but, but yeah, that, that was pretty much what I went through. And did you take any of the actuarial exams as an undergraduate? And maybe we should give a few sentence overview of what it takes to become an actuary. Yeah, uh, that's, a, that's a good point. So there are many different kinds of actuaries out there, but generally there are these two main um, tracks um, in terms of exams that you have to go through to become an accredited actuary. So, so first of all, I should say that I'm using my experience as an actuary kind of like very loosely. I, I was not fully accredited. I was more of what they would call an actuarial student. So someone who went through the process of taking these exams um, back in the day, I want to say there were a total of about 10 exams, give or take, to, even in the other track that I was not a part of. So there's the Society of Actuaries, and then there's the Casualty, what is it, Jessica? Uh, the uh, CAS, Casualty Actuarial Society. There you go. Yeah. So, so Jesse is part of the CAS. Goodness, I'm getting into the spoilers right now. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I went through the SOA um, exam system, and, and really it depends on what kind of actuary or what kind of, um, of a job that you want, you want to get into. So with, I, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but with CAS, that's more about sort of property casualty insurance, whereas with SOA, it was sort of like retirement, life insurance, um, health insurance as well? Yes, that, that sounds correct. Though, um, you know, since we've taken the exams, I, I think both societies have um, transformed a bit. And so they may have broadened. So the SOA maybe had, I, I think it may have more of an insurance property and casualty um, aspect to it. But I, I couldn't speak on that specifically. But at the, yeah, at the time, really when we were taking- our prior lives. Yeah. <laughs> It's been a while. So, so right. it definitely um, graduating with some exams done would give you an edge when you interview for a job. So um, I took the first exam uh, before graduating, and I believe I took the second one sort of right as I was about to graduate. Okay, great. And the first exam, um, at least at that time, it had, was it calculus and probability, right? Yeah, very good and, memory. Yeah, and then the second was maybe like financial mathematics? Yep, yep. The second one was sort of about interest theory and pricing, annuities, and, and various different kind of um, insurance policies. Yep. 
All right, excellent. And then, okay, so you, you finished your degree in applied math and you then went on and worked as an actuary somewhere or what happened next? Yes, I, I worked as an actuary for about a year and a half in, in uh, retirement actuarial consulting. So we worked with a lot of companies who had these pension plans um, and sort of help them figure out how much money they would have to set aside to meet their needs of paying off um, retirees and so on. So it, it was a lot of government reporting. It was some amount of doing benefit calculations, like somebody is about to retire in the next year. So how much money would they get under the definitions of the, of the pension plan? Um, yeah, it was kind of an interesting time because companies were doing away with pension plans back in the day. Um, and so we were talking about kind of the opposite of what data scientists are talking about now. Back then it was sort of like, wow, are we going to be obsolete pretty soon because pension plans are going away? And did you find that you were using a lot of um, kind of applied math or statistics or probability in your work? I thought this was probably the, the biggest surprise to me, actually, because when I was in college, I had a little bit more exposure to actuaries and, and they had said, everybody had sort of said, if you love math and you love modeling with math, you should become an actuary. And it turns out that at least early on in your career as an actuarial student, um, you're not doing a whole lot of that, at least in consulting. I know you're going to have very different stories to tell in, in insurance, but in, in consulting, a lot of these projections that we had to do were based off of mortality tables that were already constructed. So it was very much a well-worn path that we just had to sort of do a lot of data reconciliation, do a little bit of data cleaning, and then it was more Excel, Excel, Excel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, our experiences may not actually be that, that different in terms of working as an actuary, but uh, okay. So then at some point you decided to, um, to go back to academia. So how did that transition happen? What, what made you want to pursue a, a PhD in statistics? Interestingly enough, when I was working at this company um, as an actuary, I had worked with a summer intern who was very much feeling the same kind of things that I was, meaning that we were both really, really um, invested in, in math. We, we loved learning about math in college and we felt like maybe this work isn't quite enough for us. So she subsequently took on a different internship at a startup company. And she said, hey, you, you should come here because you would enjoy the work here a lot more than you do now. And so this is a company that was um, a startup at the time. They were making um, this product called weather derivatives, which really is kind of a a different way of saying weather insurance. There are technical differences, but you can think about it as a company that sells weather insurance. And um, as a relatively new product, a lot of their day-to-day -day work involved thinking about how potential clients have weather risk and how they can convince their clients that by protecting themselves against the weather, they could have saved themselves money. So just to give you an example, if you are a movie theater and it's rainy on Fridays, you might see fewer people go to the movies. And so what they could feasibly do, these, these potential movie theaters, is hand us their revenues, box office revenues for the past 
um, you know, how many years on Fridays. And then we could look at how those numbers correlate with the weather. Oh, that sounds actually quite fun. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was kind of like data science before the term data science became popular. Yeah. Um, we actually, I, I joined a team of, of two people. I was number two. We were, um, we were both quantitative analysts because that was the term back in the day. Ah, yes. <laughs> and what we did was basically work with a lot of weather data, work a lot with potential companies' data, and look for interesting correlations and figure out what kind of weather events were the ones that they would want to protect against to sort of make the most business sense for them. So I, I really enjoyed that role because it was a lot more hands-on statistics modeling. Um, I didn't think of it as statistics modeling at the time. It was just sort of like, wow, this is really cool that we get to get a glimpse at all these different kinds of, of, of risks and, and really think about them as risks that we can build sophisticated models to make an impact, a monetary impact for our clients. So did you say in your um, applied math degree, you said you took probability. Did you also take statistics? I took sort of the basic undergraduate theory of statistics course. Um, so both of them did prove helpful because I had to know R on my first day on my job. And um, I thought I did. I, I literally had said in my interview, I'm an expert in R. <laughs> and boy, was I wrong. Um, I didn't lie to them. I just didn't think that I knew so little until I had to actually use it. Oh, that's interesting. It's actually uh, great that they even taught you R in your undergraduate program. I, I didn't learn R until um, my PhD program. So, Yeah, we, well, we had one class, um, our, our theory of statistics class that was um, using the Rice textbook actually was taught with R as well. So not a whole lot of data cleaning, which is what we spend so much time with our students nowadays, right? We, we spend yeah. a lot of time showing them the data doesn't come in this perfect rectangular spreadsheet. It's actually a lot messier than that. Um, but at least I was exposed to how you can load data sets into R, how you can run these standard inferential procedures, how you can write for loops and so on and so forth. Well, that's great. And so, um, so then with this, um, with the weather derivative startup, um, was it from there that you ended up transitioning back into academia or, or what happened next? Yeah. Sorry. I went on this long tangent. No, it was very interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, uh, that was, that's great. Um, it's interesting to hear about the different um, paths that people take and, and what you were actually working on. So, so the story goes that at this company, I, I sort of, um, I started working there. It was great. And the, um, the intern who had introduced me to work there, she then left or finished up her internship and she started talking about applying to grad school in statistics. <laughs> and all of a sudden it felt like everybody around me was applying to grad school. And I had this major thought of, oh my gosh, everybody is getting smarter and I'm just going to be right where I am. <laughs> um, and, and sort of, not moving, being this constant in time. It has coincided with sort of the company also hiring a third member to join our team. And this third member um, had come from a master's program that sort of did come with a bit more computational methods um, in machine learning and so on. So 
it made me realize that for me to grow as, as an employee or just, just as a person, I kind of needed to go back to school. So for that reason, um, I decided to sort of apply to grad school, see what happens because, oh, for all I knew, I wasn't going to get in anywhere anyway, and, and there wouldn't be anything wrong with that. Um, the first person on the, uh, on the team who was the quantitative analyst, he was also going off to grad school. So, so literally everybody was going off to grad school, uh-huh. and I thought, okay, well, well, I should just give this a shot. And I did get in. Um, and, and so I thought maybe this is a sign, maybe I should just go and get this over with so that I can not <laughs> feel so inferior with everybody running past me. Oh, that's great. So you were, um, you were at the weather derivative startup for, uh, for a year then, or was it two years? It was just over um, a year and a half. Yeah, it was, it was a pretty short stay. In all honesty, I was probably too young to have been working at that time. I think sometimes it has to do with your emotional maturity as well. And you think you're ready. You think you're ready for the world. But <laughs> once you start on it and you're like, wow, I still have a long way to go. <laughs> no, that makes sense. Okay. So then you go off and, um, and so you ended up going to pursue your PhD at Yale. Yes. How did that go? What, what was the experience like um, pursuing a PhD in statistics? Ah, that was that was actually an interesting time for me because it was such a different feeling to be like at one moment you're getting up at you know seven a.m. to go to work and then you come back home probably around six p.m. and then once you're in school it's like completely different. You've got work all the time because there's there's homework, there's reading, um, but you don't actually have to be in the office all the time. It's sort of like you've got a lot more freedom in managing your own time, but it's, it's weird. It's weird not to have a supervisor who will guide you through absolutely everything. I joined at a time with um, a number of other students in the department, and I felt that I was quite a bit behind. Um, they had taken a lot more coursework in, in mathematics and statistics. And so for them, it was, I wouldn't say it was a cakewalk, but I did feel that there were some courses where they were doing so much better than me. Whereas when we had any of these applied courses, I, I was sort of the superstar because I just come from industry. I become an expert in R when I wasn't before. <laughs> and so figuring out how to fit in, how to not let imposter syndrome get to you and completely pull you down, that was a real challenge for me. Yeah, it's, um, that seems to be a real challenge for, for everyone I know who pursues a PhD. Yeah, uh, at some point, everybody thinks about quitting. And at some point, yeah. everybody thinks, oh my gosh, what am I doing here? It's many, many years of my life that's going away. Yep, yep that's true. All right. So then you, you made it through your PhD and now you, um, you are, you continue to um, be in academia and you're doing a lot of teaching and all sorts of things. So would you say, um, so you mentioned some things that surprised you about your positions in industry. Did, has anything surprised you now about your position in academia that you weren't, ex- anything you weren't expecting or what can you yeah, tell us? I, I would say that, um, Working in academia, and I sort of alluded to this earlier when I talked about the experience of a PhD student as well, that you really have to, you just really have to be on top of things to make sure that you meet deadlines, that you get things done, because 
the way that academia is structured is that nobody really, nobody else necessarily benefits from your publishing a paper. It's not like the company where everybody is striving towards making the company more profitable. In academia, you're the one that has to make sure you can juggle a lot of things such as teaching and research and maybe mentoring students. Um, but you also have to really be aware that there are some things that, that are deadlines that you have to set for yourself that you can't ignore. And there are others that you're just gonna try to do the best you can, but you're probably not gonna hit 100% and just let it go. <laughs> Is there anything that, um, what, what's your favorite thing about your um, position or least favorite thing or? Is every second of every day just so magnificent or? <laughs> <laughs> if only that were the case. Only anybody could find a job that is, that is magnificent from one second to the next. I, I would want to hear from you. Please do send us emails if, if that is descriptive of your job. Um, I would say that I, I really do enjoy um, my interactions with the students. And, and that is part of why I chose to be a lecturer as opposed to pursuing a more research heavy role. Um, it, it's just so amazing to see how, how, how bright the students are and how driven they are to, to plan out their future, to think about what's important in today's day and age. And, and they're so much more involved is what I sort of see nowadays when they're, they're doing all these extracurriculars, they're talking about internships many years into the future or sort of where they want to go and they want to talk about things like how do I get there? So really interacting with the bright young minds of tomorrow. That's what I love probably the most. What I hate the most, hmm. there is anything that I, that I dislike. I guess there's always got to be something that we dislike about our job, right? Yeah, I would say, I mean, I don't want to put words into your mouth, <laughs> but the constant emails. And it's not like there's a problem Ooh. with um, any individual email and it's, they're very important. It's just there's, they're always coming in. And so that, that can take up a lot of time when, I don't know if you'd agree to this, but um, it seems like from what you were describing, especially with students, one-on-one um, -on -one interactions tend to be the most fruitful. And um, if there are ever any issues, um, it's sometimes just better to talk about them, but there's not enough hours in the day for that. Um, and so emails tend to take the place of it. But yeah. that is so true. So, so emails kind of always scale with the number of students that we're teaching in any right. given semester. <laughs> and beyond the emails you get from your students, you get emails from professional organizations you're a part of. You get emails from potential um, editors who want you to review papers or books. Um, and, and these are all great things that I want to do, but as you say, there are only so many hours in a day and sometimes even responding to them or making a note to respond to things that becomes more of a chore. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So in, just as you noted too, it's, it's so hard to say no to things when there are things you want to do, but there's just not enough time to, to do it all. So, all right. One last question for you. Um, so now that you are professor on the other side of the fence. And um, is there anything, any sort of advice that you would have wanted to give yourself back in, in college? Something that you, you know now, um, just any general advice or whether it be specific to, um, to statistics or data science or a career in academia, um, anything you would like to tell yourself, uh, your college self, I guess. <laughs> 
That's a really good question. This is something I think about a lot, actually, because when I sometimes I'm just in awe of, of my students and I think, wow, I wish I was more like that when I was a college student. And one thing is don't be afraid to ask questions, right? I, I think when I was a college student and part of it is I went to a public university where there's so many students, I wanted to hide. I didn't want the professor to know who I was because I felt that it would be really embarrassing to talk to the professor. I would have nothing interesting or smart to say anyway. And I remember clearly that there was one, one of my professors actually wanted to discourage this kind of thinking. And she had built in a participation grade that was based on sort of you just going to talk to the professor once over the course of the semester. And she had so many students, I thought, you know what? maybe I'm just not going to go. And, and I had told myself so many times that I would go next week. I'm going to go to her office hours. I'm going to say hi. And the entire semester passed. And every time I would just talk myself out of it, I was so afraid of being stupid, which now I think that had I had those meaningful interactions, I would probably have seen a lot more. I'm um, at a younger point in, in life where I maybe am a bit more impressionable or, um, or when I had more, more choices. Um, so, so definitely, I think now as I interact with my own students, I, I'm always happy to talk about things, about class, about life, about, about anything. And, and I feel that if we become so self-conscious that we rob ourselves of the opportunities to just show the world who we are or to just improve ourselves um, by learning more, it's really sort of a disappointment because you're, you're losing out. Yeah, no, that, that's great advice. I, um, I completely agree. Meeting with, um, with faculty members is, meeting with more faculty members would have been really helpful just in just hearing what they even do. Because when I was in college, I thought that, you know, that's all, all they did was teach the specific classes that I was taking. And I, I didn't realize that they had so many other dimensions um, and previous experiences that, that could have been great to, um, to learn about just from going to their office hours. And I felt that if I had talked to them, they would basically quiz me on what I knew or didn't know about their class. So that was the other thing I was really worried about. <laughs> but they uh, do actually have lives now that I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I, so, so when I was in college, I, I had... Um, some friends, um, other math majors, not, not to spoil my you know, the <laughs> second uh, episode in this series, but we had maybe a slight opposite issue where we would go, we would always be in office hours and we'd often show up at the professor's office when it wasn't office hours just to ask <laughs> questions. <laughs> and so, and so I just, I, I feel like I need to send apologies to all my old math professors for, for disturbing them at any point in the day when I thought of a question about, about the class or on, on homework assignments. But, but um, they didn't turn you away. So I feel like they appreciated your presence. They didn't always turn me away. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, they, I, they were absolutely wonderful. And, uh, and I, I shouldn't say that I always went outside of the office hours. Every now and again, um, if I was like leaving a class that was in the same building, I might stop and ask a quick question. And uh, yeah, they, they would often answer. And so, yeah, they, they weren't as, um, once you get past the hurdle of, of meeting with them once, you realize that they're actually, they actually tend to be quite nice and, and welcoming. I mean, I, there are certainly exceptions, I'm sure, but um, I would say I would say in general that's the case. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, any any final thoughts on this, Susan? And you can always, of course, in future episodes, comment more on on your background. But 
Yeah, I think you've you've asked a lot of great questions. I don't think there's any any gaps that I didn't talk about. What else can I add? <laughs> no, that's great. That's great. Uh, thank you so much for sharing, and um, and thank you all for listening to Data Bytes. Um, if you have any suggestions or comments, we mentioned this at the beginning of the episode, but if you um, want to send us a message, please do visit our website at uh, databytespodcast.github.io. Yeah, we're sorry for the really, really long URL. We're, we're someday going to make it a little shorter once we have a little bit more funding, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening, guys. Till, Till next, next time. time. Okay, bye.